On May 1, 1945, just six days before the Nazis would surrender to Allied forces, Friedio Lampa found himself six miles outside of Berlin, in the way of the rapidly advancing Soviet army. He was working as a translator for the Germans after being drafted into service several years before. He had contracted a bone disease in his youth, which left him disabled, and until late in the war, it kept him out of compulsory military service. But as the war went on and German losses mounted, Lampa was finally pressed into service, if only in a support role. The front lines were porous at this point, with the Germans in retreat and the Soviets sprinting toward the German capital. And so it was that Lampa and another man were stopped by an advanced Russian patrol and were asked for their papers. Lampa was a non-combatant, and so on the presentation of his papers had reason to think he would be left alone as the patrol moved along. The Soviets, though, believed that SS troops were deserting and trying to blend in to escape being taken prisoner, or worse. Lampa presented his papers, and the Russians sized him up. And they didn't believe the man in front of them was the person pictured in Lampa's documents. Over the course of the war, Lampa had lost an enormous amount of weight both because of rationing and because of his enormous fear for his life and that of his friends. The Soviets walked him to a small clearing and shot him dead and buried him where he fell. At this late stage, prisoners were an encumbrance and no chances were being taken in the face of uncertainty. After the surrender of Germany, news got back to his friends about what had happened and they placed a marker on his grave which read, You are not alone. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. In today's episode, we follow the intertwined stories of the writer, librarian, and bookseller Fridio Lampa and the literary front of the Nazis' culture war. It's, of course, about silencing and erasure, but also about how books and knowledge aren't just casualties in a larger war. They are both the spoils of victory and the cost of losing in their own way. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But 
then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surrounds St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. For several years while working as a bookseller, Simon Betty had been mulling the idea of translating a book. In the course of cataloging and buying and selling, he found all sorts of books that could be interesting projects. As a bookseller, you know, you're always coming across things. And if you're dealing in foreign languages too, or books in foreign languages, you're always coming across different authors and getting interested in them. Um, and more often than not, there have been translations. And one day he came across a book called Amran der Nacht by Fridio Lampa, which in English translates to At the Edge of the Night. For whatever reason, I took out, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't an author that I'd heard of. I was commuting at that time and um, I was reading it on the train and, you know, and I enjoyed it and I knew that he hadn't been translated and I think even at that time I did actually begin a translation during my sort of morning commute. While Simon was inspired immediately to make some notes, he didn't finally decide to tackle the project for several years. But this was one that struck me, I, you know, and I sort of, you know, was looked around and saw that really nothing by him had ever appeared in English before. So a few years ago, sort of one summer, um, I sort of sat down with this book and actually sort of started to actually translate it properly. The book itself was fascinating, but as he read, Simon became more and more interested in Lampa himself. And what, one of the things that's particularly interesting about him is his own, I mean, there's sort of two things, his own story as a writer, growing up as a young gay disabled writer in Germany in the 20s and then, you know, and then in the early 30s when he actually starts writing himself. Simon realized that here was a German writer who was beginning his literary career at precisely the same moment that Hitler and the Nazis were coming to power. That his story was one that should be told and his work should be more widely known. And so he got into it. He came from the northwest of Germany, a town called Bremen, sort of harbor city really, and um, was very attached to where he came from, and worked there on a sort of family magazine publication. From a very young age, Lampa wanted to be a writer and so immersed himself in the world of books. He was a voracious reader. As a teenager, he read, you know, everything and everything, and had particular views on literature, was very interested in sort of what he went to classical writers, um, whether they were German or French, English, American, Russian, you know, he just, re- he just read it all. I mean, he was reading Kafka as it was coming out, you know, that sort of thing. After working at the family magazine for a time, he wanted to get into the larger literary scene, so he made a move. And for that, he then started working in Hamburg, in the sort of town libraries there, uh, working with things there. And at that point, he started mixing in circles with other writers, you know, meeting other people interested in books and people who were writing, and then started to write himself. As Lampe was joining the literary world, the political world of Germany was changing radically. And for his part, Lampe just tried to stay out of it. Reading his letters from the time, and I don't feel he's a political person. He didn't join the Nazi party, but then he wasn't fighting against it either. I think, given his sexuality, I think he just really sort of kept himself to himself during um, the Nazi period. 
He kept his head down writing and by 1933 was ready to publish At the Edge of the Night. And though he had for so long tried to stay away from the political furor that surrounded him, he could not avoid the attention of the National Socialists any longer. In October of 1933, his book was banned by the Nazis. He was as surprised as anyone that anyone should want to ban his book and was like shocked that when it was banned. In hindsight, he really should not have been shocked, considering how closely the Nazis were scrutinizing books. And there are moments in At the Edge of the Night that caught their attention. The sort of homoerotic episodes in it uh, I mean, it's nothing like graphic or anything like that. I mean, it's, you know, there, there are various characters in there who are gay. But, you know, he, he certainly wasn't like a gay rights campaigner or anything like that. He was like appalled that his book should be put together with pornography or anything like that, because, you know, that isn't what the book's like at all. At the Edge of the Night is a dreamlike little book, one that feels connected to literary modernism and markedly disconnected from overt politics. In it, Lampa is experimenting with style more than anything else. The way he, he crafted it, he was very interested in, in film, and he conceived the book as film-like. He was viewing it like um, a camera, and you get this idea of sort of like the camera angles. You can imagine it working as a series of sort of large, long camera shots. There's no one main character, and you know, these, it's these different threads of plot as you might get in a film and then you get you know particular characters meeting together you know someone will kind of get off a tram and meet someone else and then they'll walk away and then the camera you the reader as it were will follow that person going away from the person that you that's just been described but a couple of scenes depict gay people and one a mixed race relationship fleeting and not at all dwelt upon but it's there and that was enough his shock at being banned was an indication of how much lamba had buried his head in the sand just five months earlier, the Nazis enacted the most famous book burning of all time. Yeah, I, I would like to point out that the book burning on the 10th of May 1933, it wasn't a large destruction, a mass destruction of books. It was mainly an event of symbolic importance. This is Anders Rydell, who chronicled the destruction, looting, and confiscating of books by the Nazis during World War II. And for many Germans, they understood what, it, what this was about because they had a historical reference of this. A hundred years earlier, um, German students had burned uh, French books after the Napoleon Wars. But mainly it was a reference uh, to an episode 500 years earlier when Martin Luther uh, burned the, the papal bull and in the Nazi point of view, this act of Martin Luther wasn't an act of religious freedom. It was a nationalistic act. And while At the Edge of the Night wasn't on that pile of burning books, it was banned for the same reason. Lampa's work ran counter to the Nazi idea of German purity. Nazi book burnings remain a powerful image from World War II. But over time, what they have come to represent is somewhat different from what the Germans were trying to do. The book burnings and the banning and culling of bookstores and libraries were not just about destroying books and ideas. They were about making space for other books and ideas. When the Nazis came to power, a lot of intellectuals, academics and authors and poets and artists fled Nazi Germany. But most didn't. They got new money. And you could say that the Nazis created this 
new kind of cultural policy. The cultural policy that built libraries, they started new prices, scholarships, built operas, theater, houses. And I mean, the first official building that the Nazis built was a museum in Munich, the House of the German Art. And these were not merely public displays or superficial propaganda. This was a front line of the Nazi war on history. In the Nazi view, they always fought two kinds of wars. It was the classic war on battlefields with soldiers and uh, tanks. And then it was the political war, the, the war of ideas. And that kind of war was really the most important war. And the soldiers in that war was librarians, poets, academics, the people that could rewrite the history, that could prove that the Nazi conspiracies, the Nazi ideas was true. The Nazis were trying to rewrite world history, to tell a story of the world that centered Germany. It was a particular and inflexible story, one in which there was no part for Fridio Lampa to play. This episode is sponsored by Underlined, publishers of The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. If you know me, you know I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I've been reading her since I was an actual child and reread her at least a few times every year. So I'm so excited that this sequel is out because it's reminding me about the original that I've been meaning to read for quite some time. And now I can read both back to back. So how do you solve a murder? You follow the lessons of the master, of course, Agatha Christie. Iris and Alice find themselves in the middle of another Castle Cove mystery in this sequel to the New York Times bestseller, The Agathas. This time, to understand the lies of the present, the Agathas will need to look to the mysteries of the past. The Night in Question is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. That audiobook I have my eye on, and it's narrated by Mayor Dudeja, Sophie Amos, and Holly Linneman. Thank you once again to Underlined and The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips. So Louise Manson is the newest student at Highfield Manor, Dublin's most exclusive private school. Behind its granite walls are high-arched alcoves, an oak-lined library, and the dark secret Lou has come to expose. So Lou's working class status makes her the consummate outsider. That is until she's befriended by some of her beautiful and wealthy classmates. But after Lou attempts to bring the school's secret to light, her time at Highfield ends with a lifeless body sprawled at her feet. Then, 30 years later, Lou gets a shocking phone call. A high-profile lawyer is bringing a lawsuit against the school, and he needs Lou to testify. Lou will have to confront her past and discover, once and for all, what really happened at Highfield. Powerful and compelling, When We Were Silent is a thrilling story of exploitation, privilege, and retribution with themes of revenge, love, power, and secrets. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips for sponsoring this episode. In our present cultural imagination, there is a version of Lampa's story that plays out like this. A gay, disabled German writer has his book banned. As the concentration camp machine gears up, he is imprisoned and ultimately killed by the Nazis. It happened to many with Lampe's profile, so why didn't it happen to him? 
He was trying to sort of keep himself to himself, keep his head down, certainly after his first book was banned as well. Um, he didn't want to draw attention to himself. And his second, I mean, his second book, which is a, which is sort of a long poem, which he had privately printed in 1936, that wouldn't have aroused any suspicion or anything like that at all. Survival, rather than literary achievement, became paramount. And Lampa knew that he was in danger as he saw his friends and peers get pulled into the war. I mean, the thing which really affected him was his friends, you know, friends of his who were called up to fight. He wasn't called up because he'd, he'd suffered from this sort of bone tuberculosis as a child, so he couldn't walk properly. So therefore, he was never called up to fight himself. But all his friends were. Other friends, you know, sort of writer friends had left Germany at the time. Friends were called up to fight. They went off to war. And try as he might, the war finally came to him. Lampa was drafted late in the war to do work as a translator, which led to his fatal encounter with Russian troops. In effect, Lampa self-censored in order to survive, to get along. And it is a story that played out with the wider German people as well. They banned books, but you could still get books and read forbidden books. But if you wanted, you could, through the whole Nazi area, get some of the forbidden books. The people often destroyed them themselves. The largest destruction of books was people that destroyed their own books because they were afraid. So in 1933, I mean, everyone that was afraid, they burned their books and they throw them away. So all over Germany, you can see people that just dumped books in rivers or in alleys or everywhere, just to get rid of them. So I think that was also the dis- a large destruction that people just wanted. I, don't, I can't have those books anymore at home. And some of those books destroyed and cast off by German citizens themselves were certainly copies of Lampa's At the Edge of the Night. He just wants to be a writer. He just wants to write books, be involved in publishing and enjoy reading and writing and literature. And yet the time and the place of where his life happens to be led doesn't work for him, just doesn't work for what he wanted to achieve with with his life as a writer and a reader. Lampa's compromised career is just one small example of what the Nazis wanted to do, disrupt the existing narrative and replace it by violence, theft, and law, with their own story. And I think today, we really want to see the Nazis as cultural destroyers, as barbaric, because we want to see the culture and literature and books as a force of good. But I think one lesson of this era is that culture could also be a weapon, and it could be one of the most horrific and and dangerous weapons in the wrong hands. It's much more scary. I I mean, I'm always more afraid of Nazis that read books than than Nazis that don't read books. And as Simon's work translating Lampa into English for the first time shows, this war is not over. But unlike the millions of lives that were lost, when it comes to books and art, there are still literary and artistic works and legacies that can be saved. And maybe Lampa won't be, in the end, alone. I'm hoping his luck is, you know, maybe changing now, both in Germany. I mean, although he's recognised, I mean, he's, he has an entry, short entry in the Oxford Companion to German Literature. Germany, he's recognised uh, uh, among German academics that he is you know, uh, someone who's worth reading and 
studying. But um, I think he's not like a household name in Germany at all. I mean, most people will, in Germany will not have heard of him. I'm hoping in a way that um, people will find him an interesting author, actually. You know, I, you know, because if you look back and you look and see what else was being published at the time, early 30s, this does stand out as being a, you know, and sort of unusual in terms of its structure. That books survived, even in obscurity, allows these silenced stories to be rediscovered. The endurance of art and its ability to serve as a counter-narrative was something the Nazis were well aware of and planning for. Adolf Frank, who was in charge of the Nazis' efforts to loot and collect and selectively destroy Jewish literature, had a chilling vision of why policing literature was so important, and it was a vision that spanned generations. He said that the, the Nazis' grandchildren maybe could judge them for the Holocaust in the future if they didn't uh, in some way collected Jewish culture to show their grandchildren how evil the Jews were. So it was important not just to annihilate, to destroy, to eradicate Jews and Jewish culture. It was also important to, to save something of it as proof of the evil of the Jews. So it was a program of destruction and fabrication, of silencing and stepping into the silence created to tell a story the Nazis wanted to tell. And so the work continues of unraveling the lies, the censorship, the erasure, and the eradication. And for his part, Simon thinks that translating Lampa and talking about his work is part of putting back together the story the Nazis wanted gone from history. And also, I hope for people interested in the history of um, sort of uh, LGBT writers, you know, he is. So, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, the only. Well, I found um, a German uh, work on the history of, sort of gay literature during the Nazi period, and you know, and really, you know, it, and there's a whole chapter on Lampert. The writer there says he really is the only gay author of any sort of real. Literary merit. He really is a different case. No one really has looked at um, sort of LGBT, so I'm I'm hoping perhaps the time has come for that. Some of the books and authors targeted by the Nazis might be gone forever, but there are more books and documents and stories that, like Friedel Olampa, are sitting on shelves waiting to be rediscovered. A lot more. Just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I held a lecturing tour in in Lithuania, and. Uh, I visited the National Library, and they're still going through the, the the collections from the war. I mean, they have hundreds and thousands of letters and documents, and, uh, and and the papers I saw, it's like no one had seen them since the war. And there's so much to discover from this era. When I started to write about the Second World War, you had this idea that everything is already written <laughs> and uh, there are 10 books about Hitler's dog and everything. When you go down in the archives, I mean, you discover that it's the opposite. Almost nothing has been written. So I really hope that, that more people dig, on, dig down to this area because there are so much more to discover. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. Simon Betty's translation of At the Edge of the Night is out now from Hesperus Books. And Anders Rydell's book about the Nazi destruction, banning, and looting of books called The Book Thieves is also out and available wherever books are sold. 
you can follow Annotated on Instagram at AnnotatedFM. And after this episode is released, I'll be posting photos of Lampa, his original work, and other material related to this show. And until next time, read something great. <laughs>